Christians, well, we just cry for things that we see we need. But of course, that's just a baby's cry, and we, we, we grow, I trust, in grace. We grow, we mature in the Christian life, and prayer is one of those things which we learn. It develops. So how do we learn to pray, not just to pray, but to pray uh, aright, as it were? How do we learn how to pray? Shall I put it like that? Well, there are many obvious answers. You can read books about prayer. I remember perhaps one of the first books that I read about prayer was published by the IVP, the branch of the IVF as it was then, UCCF now, um, in the 1950s by a Norwegian called Hallesby. It was just called Prayer. It's one of the clearest and simplest books still that I have read about prayer. don't know if it's available or been reprinted, but its simplicity itself in parts. Um, and there are many others, of course. There are hundreds of them. And then, of course, better than reading the books of men, you can read the Bible. And uh, what it tells us about prayer, what Paul says about prayer, what Peter says about prayer, and the other writers, and of course especially what our Lord Jesus Christ says about prayer, and he has a great deal to say about prayer. And then have you ever thought of this? We learn how to pray by hearing others pray, by listening to others pray, those who are perhaps more advanced in the Christian life, who have been Christians longer than we have, and of course that brings us back to the Bible because we hear Abraham praying and we hear Elijah praying and Nehemiah praying and of course we hear our Lord Jesus Christ praying in John 17 and that's there because John heard him and the others of the twelve heard him and he meant them to hear it and they learned much from it that prayer in John 17 is one of the richest parts of the whole of the, new, of, the Bible, of the New Testament. Well, it's not to any of those we're turning this morning, but to a psalmist prayer. The most of this psalm is, uh, it is, it is a messianic psalm. The psalms have got very often a dualism. Like the prophets have a dualism in a different way. But... Um, this is a psalm of David, so he's no doubt speaking of his own experience. But at the same time, there are words here that are clearly applicable to our Lord, and only to our Lord. I said, here I am, I have come, it is written about me in the book, in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Now, those are words that are quoted by our Lord and of our Lord in the New Testament, so we can take this part of it, or most of it, as a messianic psalm. But nevertheless, it's also David. And the first few verses are, are, are a, you might call them a testimony of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He, he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit and so on. And then, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. He's drawing a conclusion from his testimony, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. And then from verse 5, it's a prayer. The way he speaks changes. 
It's in the third person. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. But now in verse 5 he's addressing God. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. This is a prayer. And that goes right on to the end of the, of, the, of the psalm, the very last words of verse 17. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, my God, do not delay. So this is the psalmist praying. And as I say, it's just these last two verses of his prayer that I want to look at briefly uh, this morning. And I, I would suggest to you there are very good lessons that we learn about prayer from just these these two verses I, I could almost use a word like this it tells us what as we pray what our priorities are to be you know the Christian life is a matter of priorities what shall I do today shall I do this or shall I do that well, which is more important in the Lord's sight which is, should have the priority. Well, here are certain lines as to how we should pray, what should be uppermost, what should have the priority, if you like, in our minds and hearts and thoughts as we, as we, as we come to pray. Now, I'm just going to take these, these two verses phrase by phrase. Take this first phrase here, where he says in verse 16, let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let all those that seek thee. When we come to pray, whether in our lives at home or in a meeting in the week or even during this service, what are we here to do? What are we doing? Well, he says, priority is to seek God that's what we're doing prayer is, is more than, than words it's more than asking it's more than thanking those are parts of prayer but above all it's seeking God Jeremiah 29 ye shall seek me and ye shall find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart Seeking God. That's the priority. And if we are seeking God, it suggests, it points to the fact that we have a desire for God. We want fellowship with God. We want, in the words of Cowper's hymn, a closer walk with God. I think one of the first books that was published in this country by A.W. Tozer, this is many years ago, but one of the first books that I recall being published in, from him was The Pursuit of God. You may have read it. It's still available, I think. And that's, that's he bases, uh, he starts that with, As pants the heart after the water brook, so thirsteth my soul for thee, O God, the living God. This is where prayer begins. We are seeking God. Not seeking something. Not seeking some blessing, not seeking this or that for ourselves or anybody else, but seeking God. Fellowship with God, the pursuit of God. But then he goes on in the next phrase to describe 
how we're to do that. In what spirit, if you like, are we to do that? What does he say? Well, he says, may all who seek you, or I'll go back to the AV, let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Very similar there. Rejoice and be glad in thee. How are we to do this? Well, not in a cold, formal manner, as if it's just a duty that we are fulfilling. Is that how we pray? No, he says, gladly. Rejoicing to do it. Let those that seek thee rejoice and be glad, and notice this, in thee. You know, these words are very precise, and we need to pay attention to them. Not in thy gifts, not in his gifts, not in his blessings, not even in his love and his grace, but in him, in him. You remember the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Joy is one of them. How much of that joy from the Spirit do we show? In our prayer, we're thinking of especially now, in our praying, it is a joy. You, you come to God and it should be a joy to come to him. Writing to the Thessalonians in the first epistle, chapter 5, at the very end, Paul's got a string of little commands or exhortations. I forget one preacher I heard called them the standing orders of the gospel friend of mine, standing orders of the gospel. One of those, only two words, one verse, two words, rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. It's a command. How much are you and I fulfilling that command? Rejoice evermore. Don't stop rejoicing. And especially when you come to have fellowship with God, those that seek thee in prayer. Right, that's the first phrase there. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. And then he goes on and he says, Let such as love thy salvation, such as love thy salvation. Now this is the way that he's describing those who belong to the Lord. This is the way he's describing, yes, we'd say believers. In New Testament language, we'd say Christians, saints. This is the way he describes them. How does he describe them? Such as love thy salvation. Yes, we love him, of course. John says we love him because he first loved us. And he goes on, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the salvation. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us first by sending us a savior who became the propitiation. He turned away. He bore the wrath of God and turned it away from you and me. Don't you love that salvation? The way it was planned by the Father, the way it was carried out and accomplished by the Son, 
And the way, if you're a believer this morning, it was applied in your heart by the Holy Spirit. We love him, yes, we do love him, but we also love his salvation. Don't you love his salvation? It made all the difference in your life and mine. The salvation which, as Jonah said, is of the Lord, nobody else. Salvation from sin, its guilt, its condemnation, its power is broken, ultimately from the very presence of it. Salvation from hell, which is what we all deserve. And this salvation simply through faith in Jesus Christ and bringing us peace with God and calling us to live a life of holiness and obedience. Be holy, for I am holy. That's what he says to us. And finally, into glory and heaven and the presence of God himself. We shall see him as he is, says John, and be like him and be with him forever. Let those that love your salvation. Are you one of those who loves his salvation? And then he comes on, and if we're talking about priorities... This is the priority of all priorities, if I may put it that way. This is the chief priority. May those who love your salvation, let those such as love thy salvation, say continually, always say, the NIV says, same thing, isn't it? In the AV, the Lord, the NIV says that rather, the Lord be magnified. The Lord be exalted, says the NIV. The Lord be magnified. Do you say that? Do you ever say that? He says that those that love your salvation always say, continually say, the Lord be magnified. Oh, if we and I said that more often, it might happen more often. If that was our priority of priorities. You remember the catechism? The Westminster Shorter Catechism. First question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. Magnify, exalt. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Oh, there's another side to it, but you can't enjoy him forever if you don't magnify him. If you don't glorify him. Do you want to see God glorified? Do you really want to see God glorified? He's not glorified today, is he? He's not magnified, he's not exalted. They're not doing that in the gardens around here this morning, or in Kalgurle. They won't be doing it on the beaches. They won't be doing it in the supermarkets. They won't be doing it in the public houses. They won't be doing it anywhere. The sports grounds? Oh, he's not magnified. He's, he's trodden underfoot. His name is used as a profanity, and that's all. And it's repeatedly used these days. It's just used as if it's the ordinary thing to do. 
When anybody reacts to anything, it's God's name they use and they don't mean it. My friend, do you want to see him magnify, exalted? You know, this takes precedence over everything else. If I can tell very briefly a story from the time when I was traveling among students, and that's going back almost 60 years. Um, I was visiting the Christian Union in Swansea for a weekend and um, there was a meeting on the Saturday night and it was a sort of an open discussion meeting and or a Bible study I can't remember it may have started as a Bible study and got on to a discussion of something um, and um, I don't know how it came up I, they asked me to lead it being as I was there and um, I can't remember how it came up but the question was what's our main aim as Christian as a Christian Union and as Christians individually what's our main aim what are we really to aim at and of course you've got a lot of different answers we aim to be holy we, we aim to be Christ-like we aim to save souls and a lot of people made a great deal of that and of course we want to see souls saved Paul says brethren my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved he's got a burden to see the Israelites saved so should you and I have for our people our fellow countrymen and others across the world but I tried to bring out to them there was something more important and that was that God be glorified because if God is glorified, souls will be saved. And when souls are saved, God will be more glorified. But there is a possibility of going about the work of saving souls. If you don't keep the glory of God in the forefront, you can do it in a way that doesn't glorify him. You can employ worldly methods or whatever. I thought the whole discussion was a flop. I thought nobody's taken this to heart really they think saving souls and these other things are far more important and a few years ago about five or six years ago I was in a church in Cardiff and a fellow came to me who was in the group he'd been a student there at the time and he's a faithful member of a church an evangelical church in Cardiff and uh, he said uh, I remember that discussion he said I thought everybody would have forgotten that but uh, he said, you know, he said, you stuck to the point and I've never forgotten it. Made my, I thought my visit to Swansea was worth that, if nothing else. He, he'd taken the point that the greatest thing of all is the glory of God. Let those that love thy salvation say continually, always be saying, the Lord be magnified, the Lord be glorified. Do you remember this story? I'm sure you've heard it before about the 1859 revival. David Morgan was the man that God used. A little village in Cardiganshire. And uh, when I was a boy in Mould, his son, name was J.J. Morgan, and he was the minister of one of the English churches in Mould when I was a boy being brought up in Mould. I retired just about the end of the war, I think, 
1945, we'd say. Well, David Morgan, I'm, I'm digressing. Uh, David Morgan had been to a meeting, uh, I think it was New Year's Eve, um, 1858. And in midnight came, and they were on the way home to the village where they were going. And they didn't talk for a while, because they had such a blessed meeting. And eventually the other man with him said, didn't we have a blessed meeting? And David Morgan's reply was this, yes, he said, we did. But you know, God would give us greater things if he could only trust us. And the man said, what do you mean, Mr. Morgan? He said, what do you mean if he could only trust us? Well, he said, if he could trust us not to rob him of the glory. We want the glory for ourselves, you see. And he said, we, we would rob him of the glory, and he'd give us a lot more if we gave him all the glory. My friend, you and I, if we love his salvation, we should say, the Lord be magnified. And this is in everything. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10? Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Eating, drinking, walking, whatever you do, shopping. Well, he says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There are no exceptions there, are there? Oh, we want to see souls saved. You won't misunderstand me for a moment. Nobody wants to see souls saved more than I do. We want to see the work of God revived in our land in these days and people returning to him. But our aim must be that the Lord be magnified, that God be glorified. So there's the priority of all priorities. But then we move on. There's another verse here, isn't there? Verse 17. And at the beginning of verse 17, there's an acknowledgement of his own needy, poor and desperate state. But I am poor and needy. That's the conclusion he comes to about himself. I am poor and needy. You see, how can I, how can I do these things? How can I seek thee properly? And how can I rejoice and be glad in thee? And how can I say continually, the Lord be magnified? I'm so poor and needy. That's how he's thinking, isn't it? But, he says, there's a but here. I am poor and needy. It's not going to happen if I'm poor and needy. How can I seek God? How can I do it with gladness and joy? And how can I glorify God in everything? I'm poor and needy in the first place. You and I, we are halfway there if we admit that. Are you admitting it? You're poor and needy? They didn't do that in Laodicea, did they? You remember one of the seven churches in Revelation? They said, uh, Laodicea said, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Our Lord's words are totally different. The truth is different. You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's what you are, he said. They thought they were rich. 
they thought they were plenty of everything. They thought they were a fine church, fine lot of Christians. You're not, he says. You know, admitting that we are poor and needy is a great step forward. Are you admitting that this morning, even as you hear these words? You know, we say, if we say we have need of nothing, we have need of everything. That's the fact of the matter. And God in Christ can offer us what we need. If we are needy, remember what Paul said to the church in Philippi. Do you remember his words? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus. That's why he came to earth, says Paul. He was rich, but he became poor. But you, through his poverty, might be made rich. We're poor, but he's got plenty to meet our need. Well, you have to admit that. And you mean it, of course. Not just say the words that you're poor and needy, but feel it to the depths of your being. And if that isn't enough to give us confidence, that the Lord will meet our need? Well, look at the next words here. And the AV, as I said, is a statement, and I prefer it as a statement here. The Lord thinketh upon me. If only we meditated a little upon that when we're feeling a bit down, we're a bit depressed about the work of the church or the gospel or about ourselves, well, think of it. The Lord thinketh upon me. And notice it's present tense. He's thinking about me now. Not he thought about me yesterday. He might think about me tomorrow or next week. No, he's thinking now. It's a present tense that he's always thinking about me. You might think, well, that's very difficult, isn't it? With so many believers all over the world, how can he think about them all? So many children of God, how can he think about them all, all the time? Well, you remember our Lord says he sees one sparrow fall to the ground. He counts the numbers of the very hairs of our heads. <laughs> Not difficult then to think about all his believing children, is it? No difficulty in that. Computers can do a lot of things today. They can amass a lot of information and store it and all the rest of it. Don't you think God's a bit bigger than a computer? Of course he can do it. He can think about every single one of us as his children. I have a number of grandchildren and even three great-grandchildren. I don't forget any of them. That's only a small number. But God can think about every one of his believing children. The Lord thinketh upon me. If you take it in the NIV, it's a prayer. May the Lord think of me. May he go on thinking of me. But I prefer the statement, he does it. The Lord thinketh upon me. And then, come to the, to the statements now at the end of this very verse and psalm. Thou art my help and my deliverer. He's a very present help, he says in Psalm 46. If we are seeking him, if we are those who love his salvation, who admit they are poor and needy, 
and desire to see him magnified and glorified and you're always in his thoughts he's there to help you he's there to help you he is our help and our deliverer there used to be a chorus when I was first converted in the late 40s that there was a chorus that we sang I not heard it for a long time it probably still exists it's probably still in some books but it says this God is still on the throne and he will remember his own the Lord thinketh upon me his promise is true he will not forget you God is still on the throne he is our help and our deliverer and he's thinking upon us there's only one prayer that he prays at the very end of this verse at the psalm make no tarrying O my God come quickly O my God it says in the NIV do not delay come quickly down O Lord come don't delay at all we are poor and needy and we need thee well, you and I should pray like the psalmist that God will be magnified and that he will be our help and our deliverer in these days in which we live. May he teach us to pray. May these two verses be a help to us in our praying for his name's sake. Amen.